Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. You can follow my adventures at tobymiller.org. I am once again in the coffee bar, 600 Spring Street, here in beautiful downtown Los Angeles. It's midwinter and it's got to be close to 80 degrees on the, what I like to call, imperial scale outside. This is a world record for me, or personal best, or worst, of the third podcast of the day. Astonishing, after my adventures earlier today with Rachel Weiss on Cuban art and Gary, Indiana, and then with Tom O'Leary on intellectual property, I, this afternoon, am going to be participating in what one might call, I've already started recording just to do the intro, what one might call a post-literary deathmatch mortem, or post-mortem of a literary deathmatch, and I'm here with the presiding officer of the post-mortem, namely Todd Zuniga. Hello. Todd, how are you? I'm a, I'm a B plus. You're a B plus. I'm a B plus. But Is the plus for effort or talent? <laughs> uh, Talent-wise, I'm I'm writing at a high C plus. Right. And then the plus is for talent. But the GPA is trending upwards. Right. The GPA. Because it was yeah. a D minus for a couple of semesters. And right. Exactly. And now. Yeah, I'm kidding there. I'm putting in the work. I think on your Facebook page it's got to say something like, was dealing with family crisis from between years naught and zero and 20. And ever yeah. since, you know, it's been building cars and showing independent exactly. spirit. I, it's funny, I just, before I got here, I looked at a car and... Uh, it's hard not to do that in LA. Yeah. So. I, I was like, maybe I should get a more fuel-efficient car. And then yeah. I realized I know nothing about cars. I was yeah. like, oh, I guess I should get this... Uh, I guess I should have this inspected. Oh, what's that stuff coming out of the front of it? So it seemed like a bad deal in the end, but... Yeah, this was my reason for keeping driving last night after I had an accident. I knew I wouldn't know what to do if the car ever stopped. Right. So I might as well at least get home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So I would panic if... Yeah, it's terrible. It is frightening. Cars. Cars. So tell us what brings you to LA because you've lived in several different places. Yeah, I was, uh, I was living in Paris and... Um, and I basically, well, how, where should I start? I was a young boy. No, when I was, well, in terms of literary deathmatch, we started it in New York, and then I moved to San Francisco with my girlfriend, who had co-created it with me. And what's her name? Her name's Elizabeth Koch. Elizabeth Koch. And then, uh, and then I'm, once we broke up, and then I stayed in San Francisco a little while, moved back to New York, then I moved back to San Francisco, and then back to New York. Right. And I met uh, a wonderful girl in New York, and then we moved to Paris together. And so, when I was in Paris, after that relationship dissolved, um, I was really, I love being in Paris, it's a great place to write. You know, the cliches are true on that front. I right. mean, for me, I, Hemingway, yeah, those guys. Sartre, they're all there over yeah. your shoulders. <laughs> exactly. You're there in Les Deux Gamins in the American corner, right. sipping coffee. Exactly. Right. So that's basically what I was doing. Right. Only I would, I would just write for three and a half hours a day, and then write for about an hour and a half in the afternoon, and then... When I finally sat down at my desk, I could answer all, all, answer all the emails from from the U.S. So it was pretty it was pretty great. But wow. as I was there, um, London really expanded, and and Dublin sort of grew up. Uh, the literary deathmatch. Literary deathmatch yeah. in those cities, yeah. And then uh, and Edinburgh started to make a play. So in the end, I couldn't get away from my email. But um, <laughs> but yeah. So I was I was in Paris seven months after the breakup, and I just decided to move to Berlin. And then I thought, why do I want to move to Berlin? Oh, because it's cheap. And then I thought, well, why don't I actually get 
give this a real go uh, and move to LA. So we had had a TV option on the table when I was in Paris for the show, which is my ultimate goal is to get it on TV, just because I think that will that'll give us a level of access and uh, and prominence that, that ultimately will achieve what we want, which is to get books into people's hands and just keep people talking about books in a pop cultural sense. Well, you know Simon Cowell's about to option it. He is. Very interesting. And Gloria Estefan, I think. Oh, she. My God, I can't wait to read. There's a, there's a show I went to see in New York called Celebrity Memoir. It was just a bunch of comedians reading memoirs of celebrities. And Alan Zweibel, who was one of the original writers on, uh, on Saturday Night Live, he read... <laughs> He read the memoir of Eminem, and it was one of the funniest things I had ever heard in my life. Yeah, pretty so hilarious. How many literary deathmatch sites are there? How many cities have been doing this? As of sitting down right now, there are 39. On uh, March 12th, there will be a 40th, which will be Norwich. Who knew that we'd bring it to Norwich? Uh, and then 41 will be Helsinki a couple days after that. That's exciting. Now, oh, no, I'm sorry, 41 will be Stockholm a couple days after, and then Helsinki. It begins to sound like how the Bush family members refer to one another, you know, 41, 43. Exactly. Yeah. So for those people who are not in any of the 40-odd cities we've discussed, can you tell us a little bit about Literary Death Match? As yeah. We were right. completely ignorant of it. Because I should say, this goes. This podcast is listened to each week in 50 countries outside the US. It's, in each case, it's two men and a dog right. listening. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. They're falling asleep. Right. But it is, 50% of the listenership is outside the United States, 50% is in. And oh, cool. Some folks, obviously, are not English as first language, and right. yada, yada. Right. I, uh, basically, if we haven't come to you yet, email me and we will get there. Uh, that's actually how it started. When, when, I, when we started in New York, moved to San Francisco, and then Chicago, and then somebody invited us to do it in Beijing. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Uh, and then once we did it there, I was like, wow, this translates globally. Like, we can really do this anywhere and, and infiltrate the writing communities. But anyway, the, the way it works is we invite four authors... Uh, writers, I should say, because you don't have to be published. Um, oh, that's nice. Uh, so four writers reading their own work for seven minutes or less, and then they're judged by a panel of three all-star judges in the categories of literary merit, performance, and intangibles. And then uh, the judges pick one winner from each of the rounds. It's two people in each round. And then the finalists compete in the literary deathmatch finale, which is sort of our game show absurdist take on literary competition. So to give an example, last night, I'll, I'll give an example of the last three finales in L.A. But for episode four, um, we had Brady Stanellis, we had a big poster of him, and to celebrate him, we had the two finalists throw cupcakes at his face. So that one had chocolate icing cupcakes, one had vanilla icing cupcakes, and the person who got the color of icing closest to his mouth one. So that, that was... Brady Stanellis, folks, by the way, in case anybody doesn't know, author of American Psycho, most famously, but also other novels, interesting essays, and yeah, so on. Yeah. Major literary celebrity of the last 20 years now. now. Especially in L.A. Like, his books are very L.A. Yeah, tied. So, right. so that was sort of a funny way to include him and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then the last... I, knew, I, know some, I used to know some feminists about 20 years ago who'd love to have been throwing the cupcake. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. He's not... Yeah, he's a dark-minded guy. I really love his new book, Imperial Bedrooms, but some people hate it. I loved it so much; it was the first book review I ever wrote. So that was interesting. Um, I was like, I have to write about this. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, and in fact, in that review, I say that I am. That book made me so afraid 
of Los Angeles, I was even afraid to fly over it. So apparently that has faded in the last two years. Now <laughs> well, no, the point is you've now worked out that it's safer to land than fly over. Right, that's true, right. You never know what's going to happen up there. And uh, and then the, the next to last one we did, we had a literary spelling bee, so... Round one, one writer had to spell Thoreau, the other one had to spell Thoreau, and then round two, it evolved to harder names, and then the final the final round, somebody had to spell Soltzelnitsyn, and the other one had to spell Watiango, and Gugi Watiango is an African writer. So that was just our way to, uh, to like, you know, and I think that's the best finale we do, because yeah. it's literary, totally weird and funny and crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then last night we did... Um, we had a ten novels, ten of the hundred best novels of all time, and we did Pictionary. So people in the crowd came up and drew, and the two teams guessed to try to get it right. You should have seen what people were drawing. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I've never seen it. was just like a bunch of dots, and then somebody yelled Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I couldn't believe it. And that's what won it. So, pretty funny. So, it's, there's a model, but it gets changed a lot to keep it fresh. How do you localize it when maybe you don't speak the relevant language yep. or you don't know very much about the culture of the place you're going to, be that a US city or be that you know a Chinese city? You're asking that question at the perfect time because I, I just wrote a thing on Huffington Post um, called Literary Deathmatch Bumbles Its Way to Scandinavia. <laughs> and, um, and it was interesting because I had forgotten a lot of that kind of thing, which was how we do an event when we don't know anything. And the city that we focus all our efforts on in Scandinavia to, to sort of kick this off, because we had, because I'm going to Copenhagen, Oslo, and and Stockholm, but I just had this list. Um, I went to the London Book Fair about a year and a half ago, and I, I, I was like, this is not for me. It's a bunch of corporate element thing, uh, very corporate. And I, I was like, oh, there's really this isn't what I thought it might be. But then I, I went over to this other half of the room, and it was all uh, book publishers and, and organizations for, you know, Norway and Finland and all these places. And yeah. I was like, oh my god, now these are actually the people I need to speak to to get our event there. Because they're interested in literature, and they're right. putting on festivals, and they probably have some money. Exactly, to, right. To help people travel and do their thing. Which we're really bad at asking for and getting, but yeah, that's another bumble on my part. But um, I'll wait to take that sip. But the... Um, so yeah, we, we started in uh, with Finland, and I had this list that I had acquired. Or no, it was a booklet. It was a booklet that just sort of said, here are the cool writers, here's what they're writing about. And I read this book, and I just thought, man, these writers in Finland are just doing the kind of innovative, weird fiction that I love. And they're just, they're really taking on the topics that I care about. I'm a big George Saunders fan. He's an American writer. Edgar Keret, who's an Israeli writer. These guys, I just think, are strange and inventive and funny, but also very sad in what they do. So they're really, really socially interesting and relevant. And and all these Finnish writers are the same. So we, I basically listed out all these people. I sent it to my assistant and I said, find these names. We need to, you know, we need to get to these people. And we emailed. Facebook pages, and we emailed email addresses if we could find them. We emailed websites, we emailed publishers, we emailed agents, and all these things. And it's how I describe it in the Huffington Post piece is when we do an LDM in a new city, it's like there's this big sheet of ice, and we just take a hammer to it. 
and then we follow those cracks until we mm, find one crack that's, that's really useful. And then we hit it again. Nice simile. Yeah. Very relevant. It is. It's it's really yeah. how it happens because we follow these threads and we don't know anything. And You're sounding a lot like Sarah Palin. Oh, yeah, Not knowing anything and yeah, drill, yeah. baby, drill. But that, that's but our apart way, from yeah. that. Just hit the ice. You know? <laughs> and what's interesting that the Helsinki event, we were one judge short. We're waiting for... Uh, one person to hopefully confirm, but yeah. the four writers, two of them have won the equivalent of the National Book Award in Finland. In U.S. terms, yeah. Exactly, and uh, another one was a finalist for it, and the other guy is a poet who is just apparently one of the great performers of poetry in the whole country. So we ended up finding the four best people. What's interesting is we have three of the four writers for Stockholm, and I don't know if they're culturally relevant. I don't know if they're funny. I don't know if they're going to be great. I think they will be, but we didn't. We didn't do it in the same way. So, and I didn't give it the lays like the sort of the hawk-like focus. And so, I'm not sure how that will go. I know uh, that the people in Finland are going to at least be admired and esteemed. In Stockholm, it's more of our usual. Not sure. Yeah. See, I don't um, know if I have if there are Finnish listeners. There are quite a few in Stockholm yeah. to this podcast. Oh, good. Some of whom are faithful. Some when is this going live? It, it'll go out today. Okay, good. Anybody so. in Stockholm, email me about the great writers that you love. Are we trying to get the guy who wrote Let the Right One In, uh, the novel, to judge? That would be awesome. And my favorite filmmaker is in, in Stockholm, but he can't do it. Roy Anderson? Mm-hmm. Amazing. So... I should say I didn't find it too difficult to locate Todd and email him on the web. He's there. It's Z or Z U N I G A, the last name. Yep. And Todd he does it. answer emails, and he's I now going to give you the real email. I'll, I'll tell you, Todd at literarydeathmatch.com. I'll, yeah. I'll answer. And literarydeathmatch.com is a very compelling website. The thing I'm, I guess I'm gleaning about it all is it's a bit of a mixture of game show, talent show, poetry slam. And reading. Effectively, yeah. And there was a bit of stand-up. Very much so. Well, so the way it started um, was we, the the three people that created it, we sat and had sushi one night in New York. It was was my ex-girlfriend Elizabeth, and then a writer named Dennis DeClaudio, who um, who works for Comedy Central. He does a lot of their political blogging. And a very funny guy, and we just had sushi, and we mm. said, okay, what is the state of the literary world in New York? That's where we all lived. And we're like, well, we go to readings, and the first, but like, there are three, say there are three readers, here's how it tended to break down. One person would be amazing, just a dazzlement, and you'd be like, wow, like that's the book I want, that's the kind of reading you want to see. The next person would read 12 minutes over the time limit, and you would just want to choke them to death. <laughs> and then the other person would read a, would like be like, oh, I wrote this earlier today. And it's like, well, that's kind of insulting, because yes. I left my house, and there's a, literally 15 other things to do at night in New York. And uh, so we were like, well, how do we make an event that has all the great people? And so that was the first question we tried to solve. The second question was, how do we make it fun and different? and not jerky like we don't want to be dicks we want it to be we want it to be celebratory so that's where the judges came in and so they judge literary merit performance and intangibles but effectively they all judge intangibles and it's and it what's cool about it is that the judges basically storytell in their own way like they use the stories themselves as context to tell other stories, to tell personal stories, to relate to the story. Uh, and and that's where the comedy comes from. It, well, the other trend in New York at the time we started this, um, 
was that people were doing readings and stand-up comedy mixed. And I always felt like, I felt so sad for the person who had to follow this stand-up. The stand-up would kill it. Everybody's laughing. And this guy comes up and yeah. reads about his sister who's dying. And it's like, hmm, there's got to be a better way. So we just put the comedy in context. And, yeah. and it also nice. gave us access to, to way more interesting people than just writers. I mean, I love writers. I hang out with them all the time. But I like actors. I like musicians. I like comedians. I like chefs, ballerinas. Like, we've had all those kind of people judge because it changes... It changes the perception of the event because if a ball if the lead ballerina of the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater is judging, you're like, wait, what? What is this again? Right. I thought it was a reading, but they're being judged by a ballerina. And what she says is going to be so different sure. than Fuchsia Dunlop, who's a, a food writer in in London, who who compared all the stories to Sichuan cuisine, which was awesome. And so, so yeah, when we started, we were like, how do we do all this? And and uh, one way that we started with getting the readers is we would. Because we didn't want it to just be our little tiny circle. Yep. So we would go to literary magazines, we'd go to other reading series, and we'd say, hey, send us somebody to represent you, and we'll promote your event as part of our event, because we don't care. Like, we're, we want everybody to go to everything that's good. So that was uh, that's how we found the writers. In terms of a boring institutional question, but one that always yeah. interests me, who owns Literary Deathmatch? I do. I own 79% of Literary Deathmatch. Because sometimes with these sorts of things, that's the last thing people think about when it may need to be one of the first things. We're, we're going to be turning six in 15 days. A.A. Mill. Now we're six. Uh, what is? There was a children's book that A.A. Mill I don't know wrote called Now We're Six. Oh, I'm going to read that. I recommend based. it to you. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, we'll be six and we just became an official company about three weeks ago. So, yes, we fumbled around on that one too but that's the thing when you're in the literary world you just you know create I know just I just create. I did yeah. a podcast at lunchtime with a very prominent intellectual property lawyer here in Los Angeles who represents artists as broadly construed you know right. whether it's rock musicians or starving authors right and one of the things he said into this very microphone was $35 is all it costs you to copyright a work in right. the United States and 350 to do this and blah, 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 and this is worth doing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Absolutely. the message to get out to yeah. creative people. Absolutely. So um, if we could move away from the death match sure. for a moment, well, the other thing that you're involved with, and there are several, is your own writing, which you've mentioned a couple of times. Could you tell yeah. us where that stands and how that's going? Not just Huffington Post, but the writing you were doing right. when you were being the big man in yeah. Les Deux Gamins. The, um, it's, it, your timing for this they question Les Deux I'm sorry. Les Deux Gamins. Yeah, yeah. The, your timing for asking this is awesome because, um, so I wrote a novel, I got an agent, that agent is great, one of the great agents in the world right now, and he didn't sell the first novel, and I'm grateful for that because the book actually wasn't good enough. Uh, and then I wrote another novel, and he sent it out to a handful of people, but I asked them to pull it back because I was like, wait a second, I need to make about two weeks of changes. And during that time, I had sent him a memoir that I had written, 230-page memoir, and he was like, I like it, but what, if, what about these three elements? And I was like, all right, let me think about it. So six, eh, not six months, but three months later, I'm like, oh, I've turned the, the memoir into a novel, man, it's steamrolling away, and it turned into a 1,037-page book. 
uh, which I've cut down to around 600 now, but it's very much a work. Does it have a lot about being a tennis pro in college almost and mathematics? No, no, no it's, luck. It's not David Foster Wallace. It's not David Foster Redux. Wallace meets um, Goodwill Hunting. Uh, <laughs> but, well, so just the other day, I, or yesterday, I got a message from him. He had read the first third of the book. Yeah. And he was like, uh, I don't think I'm the person to agent your work anymore. So I was like, oh, that's a bummer, because wow. that's interesting. But what's more interesting about it is I, in terms of growth and maturity, I kind of am fine with that. Like, I don't, I, I think the book is good. I, I texted my friend and I was like, I, my only regret about getting this message today is that I'm about to go on a 12-city, 7-country tour, and my defiance level is very high right now, and I want to work on that book and make it excellent. And his notes were great. He gave great notes. Uh, so it was a really interesting thing, but I, instead of feeling discouraged, I just feel like, I feel kind of free. That's strange. Well, yeah. it's very good of you to share that story with us, because often people want to know how they can become X, Y, or Z other person who is culturally productive and outstanding, as it were. And too often the story is, particularly in this country, one of an apparently arrow-like teleology right. towards success. And that is the thing. I mean, I, I think the only way to actually create relevant work is to bang your head against the wall and wrestle with every piece of work you do as long and as hard as you can and then that's what the work is and I I'm not I don't know I guess I should maybe be a little more discouraged but I feel like I I'm going to get there I mean I the funny thing also is because I moved to LA I wanted to adapt something into a screenplay so this weekend I adapted the last third of my second novel into a screenplay and it took me four days and it's only 50 pages so I'm gonna have to expand it and probably pull from more of the book but and I mean this in the like least arrogant way, but it is a beautiful work. Like I can't. It's the kind of thing that when I was uh, transferring it into script form, that I was like, I can't believe I did this. Like I wrote this, and it doesn't. And it doesn't even matter to me. Like my ego is not in that place. So I'm just like, wow. Like this is really beautiful. How do I make it better? How do I make it move? How do I make it more funny? How do I make it more heartbreaking? And that. Uh, and so that that was a really interesting thing of me, of conviction and like belief in my work and then getting the note, and I, I don't know, I guess, I think to do great things, you just have to have a lot of self-belief and trust that everybody doubts themselves for a considerable amount of the day. But I can, like today is a particularly doubtful day for me in Literary Deathmatch. I, we didn't have the perfect event last night, and I was like, oh! But we have had perfect events, and we've had events where, when I get off the stage, I was like, that is why we're gonna be a TV show someday. And we will be. With liveness comes additional risk. Right. Absolutely. Any ideas about what the formula's been, however accidental, for great nights versus mediocre or okay ones? Yeah, the, um, the great nights, diversity is key. Like, if we have four funny people, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, everybody laughs through it all, but to me it feels empty. Um, I always say to people when they ask me, what should I read? I say, I love when people take the chance of reading serious work. Because I've seen rooms in London, New York, San Francisco, LA, where people read something really serious, and it's just like, oh, wow, this is... And it gives light and shade to the evening, doesn't it? Absolutely, I used to find yeah. that at the Moth yeah, when yeah. I lived in New York, yeah. for example, which... 
still going and right. very popular. And yeah, I think yeah. it's also expanded to other venues. Yeah, yeah, they're doing great. And it's not; it doesn't have that formal competition. It has informal competition right. yeah, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. But yeah, and and uh, and also the judges. I find that if the judges have seen the show before, yeah, they're that's way better. Um, one of the guys last night is Hannibal Burris, who used to write for Thirty Rock and Saturday Night Live, and now he's just doing stand-up. And he judged our five-year anniversary show in New York. And that guy, I think he'll be a superstar. Hannibal Burris. Google him, like find him. I, I think in three to five years he's going to be very, very famous and everyone will know him. And, um, and the other two judges hadn't seen it and they were fine, but like one of the judges, even at the half time, he was like, oh, I actually don't know what I'm doing, but I'll get it. <laughs> and he did, at the second half he was better, but it, it is, it, it's interesting because uh, a lot of times, you know what, Ralph, Old, Ralph Aldo Emerson said, nothing great is ever achieved without enthusiasm. And sometimes I know the show's gonna be great by the response I get from the people I invite. Because I try to invite people that I think are gonna be excellent, but sometimes people write back and they're like, oh man, this is amazing. I can't believe this exists. I'm so excited, yes, I'll do it. And when I get enough of those, I, th I think there's like an enthusiasm meter, and usually I can top it out on my own, because I do the show in a way that is, it's, it's like, my, my sense is, like I always wear suits, for instance. And the reason I do that is because I want people to come into the room and immediately go, oh, so this isn't just a reading. And somebody's bothered to put on the show. Right. And that's exemplified, personified exactly. in your look. Exactly. It's, it's all about spectacle because it is just a reading. Ideally, it's perceived as that because really, I love, I love that we get people drunk and rowdy, but when the readers go on, everybody is silent. Full silence. Full silence. And what I love do you that. think? is included in intangibles. I mean, I can right. see performance, right. obviously, and literary merit I can see, obviously. Much of performance, though, relates to intangibles. It'd be hard for me to distinguish them, even well, though it'd be hard for me to specify what's included with intangibles. Exactly. Somebody, somebody asked me once, like, what, what does an intangibles judge do? And I answered, exactly. That was my <laughs> response. And Your mission. Should you choose to accept exactly. it? Exactly. Uh, yeah, well, it's... That's the thing, is it's sort of... Okay, if, if somebody is reading, and somebody opens the door, and there's somebody singing karaoke in the other room, and then the door closes, but the reader's still going on, everybody's still focused, but to me, an intangibles judge calls that out. They say, oh, that uh, I didn't like your choice of Scott Whelan from the Stone Temple Pilots for that one section of the book as, your, as the score. You know, just, you know, it would have been a three-second little musical interlude that was vaguely coming into the door. But, but to me, that's it. Like, pull the weirdest threads out of the room. If, yeah. if someone coughs, if two people cough, if there's a sneeze, you'd be like, well, they sneezed that part of the book. I thought that was excellent. You know, I think it really gave a lot of depth and shading. I'm glad you hired that person to, to sneeze. Just basically gotcha. ridiculous. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. That's and, nice. and to under to undermine the like our whole goal of the whole show is to undermine the competitive aspect while it's still a competition yeah sort of iron chef without nastiness right yeah and the truth is without knives right without knives and the truth is if I, th I think because it's a competition, the audience listens differently and they behave differently about the event, which is they focus, but they focus because afterwards they want to they wanna discuss not, I liked A, I didn't like B, but they say, I liked A because, and I liked B more because, and it's, it creates a dialogue that's not just, oh, I went to a reading, I like that one guy, and I like the other guy. 
you know, that's boring. It's something that's a takeaway as exactly. the time goes. Yeah. You've got about 20 minutes till your meter expires. All right, good. Or actually 20 minutes more of this before right. I think you need to leave. I wanted to ask you about two other things, and we can certainly switch back to this material. Sure. One is uh, Opium, right. the literary magazine. Uh, which, and when you were going out with someone named Coke, this must have led to lots of silly jokes, you know, Coke and Opium right. and so on. But uh, all that sort of just understandable wordplay aside, right. it's quite a phenomenon. And I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of history for those who may not be familiar with it in, yep. in either of its manifestations, op Opium. Yeah, this is, you're catching me at an interesting time, uh, but I will, I will give you the history. Basically, I started that in 2001 because... I was living in Chicago and I just wanted to hang out with writers. I didn't know enough, I didn't have access. Facebook didn't exist and I don't even know if MySpace, no, Friendster might have existed then in the Friendster MySpace Facebook evolution. So it wasn't as easy for me to access people. So I started this site, I think it got 10 hits the first day and then we've evolved to where we were, I think one day we got like 9,000 hits, that was insane. But. Um, but it's it's fiction, uh, poetry, nonfiction, and it all has an estimated reading time, which is our way of sort of making fun of the internet at the same time. Uh, and then we went to print in 2005, and then our eighth issue, which was our best issue content-wise, uh, an artist did a cover called "The Greatest Story Ever Told," and it was uh, it was one word would reveal itself every hundred years for a thousand years. And I'm sorry, the longest story ever told. So it was a story that would take a thousand years to read because you couldn't read every word. And that just, that's when we had 9,000 hits one day because uh, people all over the world were talking about it. It was incredible for a literary magazine. And we got listed on like best covers of all time with Time Magazine and Empire and uh, just, it was incredible. And that was sort of this amazing peak. And I was so grateful that the issue lived up to my standard as well, because we do, we've done nine issues in print, and I love them all, but you know, some are better than others, or I, I'm more passionate after the fact with certain ones. Um, and so our 10th issue is going to be Opium 100, a, li <laughs> a, a century of literary humor. And uh, what I wanted to do was make fun of the fact that we could make 10, 100, and just sort of have fun, because I, I said my goal was to get to 100 issues, but I didn't, I didn't know how that would happen. And then we became a non-profit right around then, which means we can take donations. But I'm not good at asking for money, so the defiance that I talked about earlier, I used to get the issue together, not really have enough money, and then I would just be like, nope, I have to figure it out, and I, I, we have to do it. And so we would, and it would always make its money back, which is incredible for literary magazines, but it's, we're good at making people like us and, uh, and producing good work. But then uh, becoming a nonprofit sort of screwed us up, and then my mom died. So there was like a mom death nonprofit. Sorry. Yeah, it was a bummer. But so the next issue I wanted to do, instead of Opium 100, because that's an expensive beast. Uh, I wanted to do a tribute issue. Well, then I thought, well, let's just do Opium 43 and we'll just do a regular issue, just to screw around. And then uh, then my mom passed and I was like, oh, I should do Opium 39, which was her birth year, and then do a heaven issue, because I'd wanted to do a heaven issue, whatever that meant, for years. And, and in our old submission uh, list, it would give 10 rules to submission, don't submit over 4,000 words, don't... Have misspellings. I don't know. Don't don't you know, be boring. Don't be boring. Like have a great story. And the number ten was always call your mother. She misses you, which is which is now what I sign off with the death match, which I love because 
I, the first time I did it was just a couple days before she passed, but I had a show in New York, and I was I was in New York, and I was thinking, you know, it was pretty heavy, but then I remembered that, and it was just, to say that at the end of the show is my way of subtly referencing her, but it was really, it was really cool, so now I say it, because... And you knew she was ill at that time? Yeah, she was, right. and she was on life support, and I, yeah, so... Very difficult to perform under those circumstances, and yet also that gives you a certain framework, doesn't it? Yeah, it was pretty When there's a crisis. Yeah. Getting back to the other thing, uh, I guess you're a 501c3, right. which is this wonderful expression in the United States. People yeah, walk around straight corners saying, hi, I've got a 501c3, which refers to our tax code. Right. And it is exactly, as Todd said, the not-for-profit status that allows you to receive monies. Uh, as donations. Why did that uh, sort of screw you up as you put it? Just because it meant that we had to ask for money and that and that I felt like, well I was at my most impoverished around that time, but just that I wasn't supposed to pay for the magazine anymore, that if I was going to do the work then there were going to be uh, people to pay for it. But also I moved to Paris around that time which just demotivated me. Um, we're doing an issue now, we're putting it together, which is going to be very cool and very surprising and very weird. And that's the other thing, when I used to do an issue, I used to sit down and think, I used to look at everything that had been produced in every literary magazine and books and culture and everything, and I would say, how, like, what can we do that's unlike anything else? And I just haven't had that time to really say, okay, I'm going to make something excellent that no one else could do because that's the energy I'm putting into literary deathmatch and my own writing and basically not doing opium means I get to write books and uh, that's the trade-off. If I if this book would be finished then I would have the time to do opium but um, yeah also I've never done a drug in my life so that was sort of the one of the spins of that title. Yeah, nice, yes. fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> um, and let me now ask you something that's... Oh, by the way, do you know Tom Lutz? I know that name. He runs the Los Angeles oh, Review yeah. of Books. Yeah, yeah, I don't I'm know whether not, you've, you've ever chatted with Tom. I haven't, but... He's a nice I, guy. Yeah. I gave him my How to Make the Magazine Survive Financially idea, which is mm. sell chocolates and sell wine through the site. Oh, wow. And then just have that... You know, what do people like to read with? Right. Chocolates... That's a good one. ...and or wine. Right. Maybe cheese. And get some merchant right. to underwrite you and say, well, here we are in opium. What, what goes well with, with right. reading an, an issue of opium? It's, yeah, yeah. I don't know, cheese or chocolates. It's pretty good. Anyway, he might be an interesting person to talk to yeah. about running this sort of thing in L.A. Because his is also, you know, it's an online... Yeah, it's great. ...presence, yeah, and it's I very good, it. nice guy. Anyway... Uh, I wanted to ask you something much broader and, in a sense, grander, yes. and not related specifically to these particular enterprises, although very much connected in another sense, which is, you know, great American novel, this mythic entity that can never, it seems, exist, right. can never be brought into being, even retrospectively, can't be awarded to Faulkner or whoever. Right in the contemporary moment can't be awarded to DeLillo or whoever. Is this something that the people that you work with even think about? Or is that just something of another epoch that no one wants to even to want, you know, how to be right. Melville? But that's not, in fact, on the agenda. Well, I think Zadie Smith wrote an essay. Uh, it's in, I can't remember the name of the book. But what she says in this essay, look it up. Uh, no, I've given you no clues. Uh, she wrote in, in this essay that every, everyone who starts a book, they think they're going to write the greatest book in the world. That's why they start. And then as you write the book, 
you are writing the book, and then you get to a point where it becomes your book, and you recognize that it's not the, going to be the greatest book ever, but you finish anyway because you because you're moved to, and you've you've created enough to get you past that initial hump, and then you you finish the book. And I think I mean I hang around with a lot of people that are really talented. Um, but I don't know what it would mean. It's, what I think is interesting about that question is the internet and the niche, the nicheness of the world now. I think it takes away from the possibility of something standing up. There's no Beatles and Elvis anymore. I mean, Lady Gaga is just a, is just a, a Madonna. A, yeah, a, a pretty good retread. Pretty good retread. Very good tie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Sorry to compare women to ties, but yeah. you know what I mean. But uh, but yeah. So I think I think that's really interesting in literature as well because National Book Award books, like I don't know. I mean, housekeeping. Uh, by Marilyn Robinson, I think is the last just unbelievable book I read. Like the kind of book that I said that is probably the best book I've ever read. An American Pastoral by Philip Roth before that. And I love that he called one of his books the Great American Novel. I thought that was arrogant <laughs> yes. and wonderful. He did. Fi- he did actually write the Great American Novel. Right, he did. Yeah. But you know the story of the dinner party once a year. The big lions would have their meatpiece dinner party. Oh really? So it'd be uh, Roth, Updike, and Mailer. And the story is that, that it will be held at Roth's apartment in New York, so there are butlers and stuff like this, right? Anyway, at one point there's interruption. The butler comes in, whispers in Roth's ear, and then they go on saying, well, uh, Philip, um, John, Norman, what do we think about this? And they're taking their dicks out and yeah, waiting around. Yeah, yeah. And the next day, they read in the New York Times that one of his ex-wives had just committed suicide. And they, re- they realize, they discover that, that was what the butler had whispered in his ear. Wow. So Philip Roth, great guy. Wow. In any event, but also performing under the right. pressure of death. Yeah, Another yeah. way of thinking about God, it. That's fascinating. It is an amazing story, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think I made it up. It's probably too original and interesting for me to have made up. Right, maybe. But it sounds good I've, if I did. I wish I had one of my fake stories on the top of the <laughs> No, no, actually, Sorry, but... I, I used to know somebody who worked with someone who was at the dinner. Oh, really? Not one of the three big literary right, lines, yeah, but, yeah. but one of the others. An agent. An agent yeah. Yeah. So, but, I I will say this as well, that I think it's really interesting because I try to surround myself with the smartest, most interesting people in the world. You know, when I hang out with people, I'm... When I invite people to dinners, and I try to get four to six people dinners going in different cities, uh, I'm doing one in New York when I arrive, and all these people that are coming don't know one another, but the girls are just super ridiculously talented, and the guys are just weird and funny and smart in ways that most people aren't. And it's just going to be me and six friends, you know, people that I've met around, and... uh, and I love that because I just think because of the nicheness, as I'm calling it, of the world, um, there's so, I don't know, fame and celebrity, I think, is got, has gotten old. <laughs> and what we want is, like, the people that are actually compassionate and thoughtful and actually creating the great things. Mm. And I, I only say that now because I'm 37, but I... When I was 15, I probably just wanted to be famous, or I wanted, you know, whatever I wanted was was a little bit more skewed. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think as you evolve, that you want you want people that feed that thing. Like I'm an I'm an okay looking guy, but I've realized in the last three weeks that the reason people will even look at me or kiss me is because I am like because I don't know everything, and I'm trying to find the more thoughtful, interesting thing to discuss and discover. There's a nice expression, a naive inquirer. That's a good expression. Open-hearted notion of these things. 
one of the things that interests me in all this is, assuming therefore that as part of this decentering, there's not quite the search of a great American novel, and you mentioned the internet in part of this answer that you gave, the fact that we're now seeing bestsellers being self-published but distributed through Amazon, right. it's not clear that many of these are meant to be literary. Right. They're meant to be fiction. And for those maybe not in English as a first language, the best way of explaining the difference between these is that in an old-fashioned bookstore, there's a, in the United States, there's a section called literature and a section called fiction. And the section called fiction has money, death, power, sex novels, and raised writing on the cover of the paperbacks. And the bit in literature doesn't. And the literature section has people with the names that we've been mentioned. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you've got like the Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code in that first section. And then you have Joshua Ferris and the Unnamed in the second section. Which, right. by the way, that book is unbelievable. And I don't know if people on this podcast have read it, but it, it's one of the best books I've read in five years. Do you think there's a future for, if not the great American novel, then literature in the context of the crumbling of many publishing houses I have a, to evolve, do better, and so on? I have a thought about this. Yeah. Um, I'm excited that you asked that because I think what's happening, especially for me, as somebody who was raised into a world of fiction writing, and I, I, my parents didn't raise me that way, but I, I aspired to be a fiction writer from the age of 10. And for me, the... Oh, we're fine on time. Okay, now we're talking about this. I'll let my car get to it. <laughs> but I, I think what's happening um, now, for me, it was very hard to stay motivated as the as e-books came out. As, it's just everything got weak. Everything just weakened in terms of that's what I want. That's what I want to be. I want to be a novelist. I want to be the, you know, I want to be in the lineage of Tobias Wolf and Raymond Carver and George Saunders and, you know, I want to be the next person down that line. And, uh, and so what I think is going to happen, and it's even evidenced by what I did this weekend with turning my novel into a script, was that I think story is the most important thing going forward, and that all the writers that would have turned into novelists now might just be storytellers, in whatever capacity that is. I still think books are going to be important, because even in film right now, people want proof of concept, basically, and adaptations are the big movements. I've talked to a lot of people about scripts lately, and they're like, yeah, they want to they know that at least somebody else thinks it's good. Partly because Hollywood people are weak, and they, they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to be the guy that made a crappy thing. They want to be the people who have, you know, as much padding when they fall as possible. Um, I don't mean they're weak in a bad way. It's just we all have our way of doing things, but I just don't think... They don't take too many chances. The interesting thing when you mention adaptation, of course, is that nowadays many writers are actually producing either literature or fiction with an eye precisely to that. Mm -hmm. Someone I think of in this light is a person, in a way, on the cusp of these categories, Elmore Leonard, oh, yeah, yeah. who is a crime writer, as many people will know, very famous. Uh, he has a TV series at the moment that's on in the United States. Which one is that? Uh, is Justified. Oh, wow, I didn't it's, know he did that. Yes, okay, we'll it's start based that. on some of his short stories. Oh, wow. uh, awesome. And his new novel, which is really two novellas thrown together called Raylan, oh, yeah. uh, which is about a Texas state trooper, is, the, is about the character who is the basis for this thing called Justified. Oh, that's but if you think about some Hollywood movies made from his later books, like, say, Get Shorty or whatever. Right. Out of Sight is Out of Sight is, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. 
I think he changes the hair color. The hair color of a woman changes between novel and film. But other than that, it's, it's almost as if he'd written a script. Right. Because I had read the novel before seeing the film, and I knew what words were coming next. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for me, I grew up parked in front of the TV watching Star Star Wars every morning. You know, I would eat cereal and watch Star Wars, and that was weird because HBO had like four films at that time, so they just repeat <laughs> Star Wars all the time. But uh, and TV was a huge driver in my life. And I, I write televisually. I, you know, my images and the way I write. Um, the guy who wrote Richard, ah, I'm not thinking of the name off the top of my head, but he wrote a great book, and I, you're not going to find out his name either. But he said that his book opens in a, in a police station and that he didn't describe it. He's like, they're in a police station. You don't need to know anymore. You, you've seen it. If you haven't seen a police station on, in a film or TV show, then go, don't read that book yet. But basically he said, like, I don't need to describe Describe it anymore. I, I can say there's a cup of coffee and a box of donuts, and that's all I need to say. Or maybe not even that, because you, you already are bringing those things to the forefront. And I think that's really interesting as well that fiction is being um, being changed by the fact that we now know that people have seen enough things in the world. I I'm very short on setting. You know, I say there's a bathroom. I say there's a kitchen. I say there's a living room. I don't talk about the paintings on the walls if there even are. You know, I just don't. I don't talk about that stuff. And Elmore Leonard's a big influence on me because he believes that you start the scene in the action and then you figure it out. And I'm a big fan of that. And character can derive from that and so on. He has a little book, doesn't he? I read it on, you know, 10 things you shouldn't do to write. Or oh, yeah, yeah, or which somebody made fun of recently and I kind of got back at him because you, like anybody trying to figure out rules or anything like that, I think it's great. Give it a shot. But uh, he... He was getting criticized. I mean, any of those rule lists are going to be idiotic, but they're also helpful because it's just a motivator. Well, they give you something to bounce against. I've never right. read that one, but there's an essay by George Orwell that uh, I imagine you know called The Politics of the English Language. I don't know that. It's a I'll goodie. Read that. Yeah. It's short, yeah. uh, which is always good. Even, even better. <laughs> and it has a five or six rules that I used to have in the days before you could print things out. I think I typed out on a nice. manual typewriter and stuck up in front of me the things like don't use any metaphor you're used to hearing or reading any word that can be cut out of any sentence do so yeah, I mean this sort absolutely. of thing you know yeah, yeah. incredibly helpful for getting that fast prose exactly yeah I there was a I don't know what I was saying I was talking with a friend recently and we were talking about a book or a story we heard or something and I said it, when we were all talking about how great it was and I said what was most amazing is there was not one word in the story we didn't know meaning he didn't need to pull a Michael Chabon and just reap you know go after the dictionary and pull things out I mean Chabon probably does it without thinking about it or looking it up but you know like you don't the story is what matters, and it's essential. If you tell it right, you don't need to dress it up, and you don't need to make it fancy. Literary deathmatch, we dress up and make fancy to trick everybody <laughs> into coming, but, you know. So in uh, terms of your own writing, it sounds as though you're driven by story in the, in the novels and screenplays that you're working on. What button? You were saying you don't do a lot of descriptive prose, which is very understandable in the case of a screenplay, obviously. Right, yeah. So, how is character established, and what role does dialogue play? I'm a huge dialogist. Um, my books are actually long in length and short on word count. It's weird, but um, I just there's a lot of dialogue and very quick dialogue. And to me, that's how you come to know someone. I think if you have a vague picture of what somebody looks like, I hung out with a girl the other night. And after we had a drink, she said, 
I, I made a joke because she was very vague about going out that night or not. And I was kind of like, yeah, thanks for coming after being really vague about even wanting to go out. And she's like, well, I had to research you. And I didn't say it, but after I walked away, I thought it. I thought, well, yeah, I researched you by showing up to talk to you. I don't need to go on the internet to find out anything about you. Um, I can figure it out by sitting with you. And I figured out a lot that night about her. And uh, and to me, I that's... Can, I can, I'm like Mark Zuckerberg on Timeline. I can look into your fucking mind exactly. and understand. Exactly. For example, he's discovered that I allegedly am Catholic, have a problem with my roof, that's and it. have gout and diabetes, according to the banner ads on yeah. my page. There's a lot going on in this conversation, and I already know everything. But that's the thing, is I want the characters... I don't think we... I think we are... We want to know so much up front, but my thought is if you make them say interesting things right away, people will be like, oh, this is interesting. I can't believe they said that. And they'll follow to yeah. see they'll follow to see who that person is and what they have to say. And I yeah. and that's that's what drives me to write and that's what drives my characters. Well, so a lot of it is a kind of inductive reasoning. In yeah. What about are there what about the role of something like the interior monologue? Where characters are reflecting for themselves. Right. Uh I like soliloquies. So there's one of my favorite parts. I just did this great event in San Francisco where um, it's called Why There Are Words, and they do it in Sausalito. And it was a it was a two year anniversary, so they had people covering one another's stories. Meaning, I would read your story and you would read mine. And this guy read this part of my novel. My novel is about four friends that travel the world after one of their best friends dies, and they inherit the money and. Uh, and so they're running around the world and they're sort of getting drunk and they're being crazy and there's this one moment early in the book where they're drunk in Prague and the one character, the main character is just so drunk and he's looking at girls, he's thinking about his dead friend and how he found out he died, he's thinking about the people from high school who had him on Facebook that he doesn't care about and doesn't want to add on Facebook. He's just jumping all over like a drunken person would. And I, if I would have read that, I would have been shouting and making it really funny and silly. And this guy read it, Seth Harwood, and you should check out his podcast and his books on, on the internet. He read it so slowly, and it was so sad. It was just so heartbreaking because he emphasized the fact that his friend, how he finds out his friend died, where I was emphasizing the drunkenness and trying to bury the friend death because ultimately that, to me, was what that section was about. But hearing it read slowly was so beautiful, and I, I was, I was super nervous to hear my own work. Like I was like, oh god, oh god. Um, but it was, it was really, it was really cool to hear that and to see that side of it. And yeah, it's also interesting, I think, to have work excerpted that is from a much longer form, uh, where you think of it in the context of the entire novel. Right. Yes. And he's reading this segment that exactly. you've selected and has to make sense of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without as much context now. We're probably at our time point. We're at our time, We're unfortunately. Our time point. It was thanks. great to meet you, Tom. It was Thank awesome. you very much for coming. And of course. I want to extract a promise from you if I can. I love extracting promises, but I'm I never in. do it in, when recording. I never do it in live. Yeah. I try to close deals that way. It never works. Right. But to be more serious, uh, when you're back in Los Angeles after you've done some of the traveling you're doing, and uh, when perhaps you've been working more on the screenplay and so on, will you come back to the pod and join us again? I'm going to do some great stuff. I'm going to come back with some success stories, and then I'll tell all the other failures before that right now I'm at a great fail state point so it's pretty good <laughs> like you're getting me at a good fail state so yeah I'd love to it's to totally fun I love doing this kind of stuff many thanks Tom yeah